key to life. Hello, this is Sekou Burmese, your host of The Lit Review, a podcast brought to you by the Academy of Management Journal. In this podcast, we dive into the insights of recent research published in the Academy of Management Journal. In every episode, we interview authors and corporate leaders to discuss the inspiration for research ideas and how insights from this research apply to current pressing issues in organizations and markets. For our inaugural episode, we have a fantastic guest, Kathy Eisenhardt, who is the Professor of Strategy and Organization at Stanford University School of Engineering. In our conversation today, we talk about entrepreneurship and decision-making. Being an entrepreneur requires taking a series of calculated risks in uncertain environments. One of the most important decisions for a young firm is where to seek help. This can come in many forms, including collaborative relationships, which are the ties that entrepreneurs use to help them hone their ideas into marketable products and to gain access to markets. In a recent paper, Kathy and her co-authors explored a trade-off that many entrepreneurs face, which is, on one hand, to be a big fish in a small pond and collaborate with smaller partners, or, on the other hand, being a small fish in a big pond and collaborating with a large, powerful partner. The results of this research are intriguing, as well as speaking to a broader theme of how low-power actors navigate relationships with high-power actors. In our discussion, Kathy also shares some of her simple rules to navigating the complex and uncertain area of academic publishing, including how she used insights from her own research to pick a publisher for her most recent book. I hope that you enjoy this episode of The Lit Review and my discussion with Kathy Eisenhardt. <laughs> Welcome, everyone, to The Lit Review podcast. Today, I am joined by Kathy Eisenhardt who's a professor of strategy and organization at Stanford University School of Engineering. She holds the S.W. Asherman MD chair and is a member of the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. Kathleen's research sits at the nexus of strategy, organization theory, and entrepreneurship, where she focuses on high-velocity markets and technology-based firms. While she often uses multi-case methods, she recently blended multi-case theory building with machine learning to create better theories. Her most recent book with Don Sol is Simple Rules, How to Thrive in a Complex World, designated a top business book by the Wall Street Journal, Bloomberg Business Week, and Washington Post. Unless you believe that Kathy only sits in academia, she also works extensively with firms in sectors ranging from the internet uh, clean tech, software, and semiconductors to agribusiness and biotech. Hi, Kathy, and welcome to the Lit Review Podcast. Hi, thank you. Thanks for having me. Excellent. So um, if you don't mind, I'd like to start with uh, a paper that you and your co-authors published in AMJ in 2022. The title of that paper is Big Fish versus Big Pond. Entrepreneurs, Established Firms, and the Antecedents of Thai Formation. And I think this paper asks a really interesting question uh, that faces many entrepreneurs. In trying to develop collaborative relationships with other organizations, entrepreneurs are faced with this decision. Does it make more sense to work with a smaller firm, to be a big fish in a small pond, or work with a very large organization and be a small fish in a big pond? 
So before we get into the nuts and bolts of it, I wanted to ask, what got you and your co-authors interested in this topic? And how did you arrive at this tension to investigate? Okay, yeah, it really started, I'd say, with with Henning. Uh, He was interested in the platform economy. Uh, and he had been already been working with Linus Stollander on issues around crowdsourcing. So he was interested in how platforms operate. At the same time, from my side, I was I was doing work with uh, with Tim Ott on marketplaces and more broadly with Doug Hanna on ecosystems. And so I was interested in platform economies, the platform economy, the digital economy. Uh, so we so we got to thinking about thinking about platforms and what we could do on platforms. Mm-hmm. Um the way that we then went is, and what I, I usually do, and I think my co-authors do as well, is we usually start with a lip, lip review. So we try to really understand what's going on in whatever it is we're thinking about. In this case, it was platforms. And we realized that there was a big space in thinking about the relationship among peers. Hmm. So a lot of stuff on platform owner versus business or person on the platform, but not a lot about what peers were up to. Hmm. So we started thinking, oh, peers is the gap. Mm-hmm. And then the more we thought about it, the more we thought, well, wait a minute, this is actually a bigger issue. It's the it's the classic big fish, big pond mm-hmm. dilemma that we face when we're choosing a college or we're choosing an academic job or a regular mm-hmm. job yeah. or we're or we're doing a book publisher. Mm-hmm. And then at the same time, I was also working with Don Saul where we were we were we were writing simple rules, our book. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so I was I was actually facing that dilemma myself. Which, which <laughs> publisher do I want to go with? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So, so it was this kind of confluence of things we were interested, gap in the literature, um, random event in real life. Yeah. Um, that kind of yeah. So you were that. doing some me search as well, right? Uh, you were faced <laughs> with this and you were thinking like, hmm, what should I do? Um, and so <laughs> yeah, okay. now everyone wants to know, so what did you choose? How did, which way did you go with the publisher? Did you do Big Fish? <laughs> with the publisher? Um, we, went, we, we decided that we wanted market access. So we went, uh-huh. with, we went with the big pond and All hopefully right. we were the big fish. <laughs> <laughs> grow to be a big fish big money too that was okay. the other thing all right i get it i get it all right so um in this paper what what do you think were some of the key findings um in your view um key takeaways uh on this from this paper yeah i think the i think the key takeaway is is just is de- one of the key takeaways is just demonstrating the phenomenon and showing mm-hmm. that yes there really is attention and that most of us would like to be the big fish and most of us would like to be in the big pond yeah. But most of us aren't in that situation. And mm. so we are. So so we you could see in the data that who who people preferred, but you could also see in the data that the, the two are negatively correlated. And so there is a trade off there. Yeah. So I think that's the one that's the one finding. Um, mm-hmm. And do you think this was um, something that you saw yourself struggling, like you talked about with your publisher and you and your co-author kind of going back and forth? So you saw something similar with these entrepreneurs right. and these cases. and. What what tipped the scale in your view? Was it just we aren't we can't uh, get into a big pond and so uh, our choices are somewhat cut off from us? Or was there eventually a, um, a, a just a leap of faith taken one way or the other? You mean in terms of book, in terms of my own book publishing? Well, that one and what you see with uh, the, the companies in, in your case. Well, which yeah, was a, I, a large I, data set. I think what you see is and I saw it, and I actually did this myself. Mm-hmm. Um, you do see less experienced people going to the smaller pond where they can be important and okay. get the kind of resources they might want. Yeah. Um, in fact, I think that's the other, if there's two, I think the two key findings, the one is that the trade-off exists uh, and is real for people. 
Yep. Um, and the other is that that people's weighting of that trade-off changes over time as they mm. become more experienced. So for me personally, I know when I did my first book, I was really looking for my co-author and I were really looking for support. The second yeah. time I was looking for who can sell my book best. Yeah. Yeah. And not, and I didn't feel I needed the help on the editing side. Got it. You know, I, I do hear that uh, when I talk to serial entrepreneurs, right. Um, their, their first time out, they're looking for someone that believes in them. A, yeah. Even if the terms of the deal aren't, aren't the best and et cetera. But then, after they've done it once, then they're like, nope, I'm going for, you know, the, the, the biggest market access I can get. Um, and I've always wondered if that was, um, a, a good strategy, you know, um, and I know this goes a bit beyond, uh, you know, what you guys are studying, but do you think the outcomes match that meaning betting on yourself as your more experience is better? Uh, or is it good to stay in a small pond to be the big fish? Um, does that make sense? I, yeah, no, no, it, it does. And, 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 you know, I, in, in this, as you may know from my work, a lot of my work has a, has a performance dependent variable. Mm-hmm. So one of the, the somewhat frustrations of this paper was I, there's no performance. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, so I kind of, I'm, I'm a performance kind of girl. Um, <laughs> but I, I think, and I think it's partly an individual preference to what extent are you a risk taker? To what yeah. extent are you overly confident? Yeah. I think entrepreneurs tend to be overly confident. Uh, so mm-hmm. Maybe they should back off from that strategy a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, I've never lacked for confidence, so maybe mm-hmm. I should have backed off too. But uh, I, I think it's worked out pretty well for you, Kathy. So uh, <laughs> well, we use your uh, an N of one and uh, just bet on yourself all the way through. Um, was there anything unexpected um, in your journey that you found? So something that maybe even if it didn't make it into the paper, just something that um, y- you came across uh, in this project. Yeah, yeah, there were a couple of of things. Um, one was the, the the fourth hypothesis, the one that was on competition. Mm-hmm. And what that basically hypothesis was was arguing was that um, that that you have to think about who your immediate competition is in the genre in which you are, mm-hmm. or the category in which you are. Mm-hmm. So, for example, you could go to UC Berkeley or UNC, big state schools, and you'd be probably a small fish in a big pond. Mm-hmm. But if you were in the archaeology department, you might actually be a big fish mm-hmm. in that pond. Mm-hmm. And so it really depended on what your genre was. What Was this an action game, a mobile game, yeah. Yeah. and how much competition in your genre was there? So yeah. that was something that I thought was pretty subtle, uh, mm-hmm. that it's really, it's not just the pond itself, it's the category that you're in. And, and you see it actually in book publishing. If you're the If you're the one title your publisher has in a particular category or genre sure you get you get the kind of treatment you want yeah not so much if there if there's a bunch of people who are also doing whatever it is you do yeah so so riding the trends has that negative effect which is now it's a crowded space and and you're looking for uh, to differentiate yeah hmm. the the other the other thing that was not in the paper that i think was unexpected was something that hennings picked up on since he's actually got he's got a new paper where he shows that even though crowding and competition is potentially a negative um, for the organization, for the developer. Yep. In fact, for individual people, it can be a good thing. And it can mm. be a good thing in that if you're in a crowded space, you get to know other people and other potential employment opportunities. Mm. And so he's, show, he's, he's now showing that for the organization, the crowd may not be great. But yeah. for you as a person and your own personal mobility, yep. um, you might actually like the crowd. 
No, that sounds right up my alley. I'm always intrigued by times or instances where the interests of the individual and the interests of the firm diverge yeah. and uh, what what happens uh, at that point, because that often explains kind of suboptimal strategies. Like, why is this company doing this? Oh, someone, <laughs> it benefited somebody, right? Uh, you just got to figure <laughs> yeah. out who that is. Right. It may have may, maybe benefited them. Yeah. So uh, let's expand out from, from the paper, which is a great paper. Suggest everyone uh, check it out. Um, it's on the um, the video games, the video game industry, right? If I have that correctly. Yeah, you have the video game industry. Uh, yeah, and so not if you my like... go to industry, but <laughs> <laughs> so if you're into video games, uh, also you, you might be intrigued by the um, by the context. Okay, so uh, thinking about more generally from the the paper, really is about power, right? Because um, navigating if you're a low power actor. And you're looking for resources and collaborations. You look for someone that's got similar powers you or someone that's more powerful. And how do you navigate that? And so what what are your thoughts on, you know, thinking about entrepreneurs or even established firms that are trying to navigate this power dynamic? Yeah, yeah, that was that was a theme that that I, I particularly liked in, in, in our paper that, that gave some advice to people. Obviously, the platform owner is the is the. The platform owner or the publisher is the is the dominant player, uh, and so it gave us a view onto the low power actors. And, and I, I I got into this a bit in a couple of other AMJ papers. So mm-hmm. one with one with Ben Hallen on catalyzing strategies, yeah. and that was about how entrepreneurs raise money yeah. um, from venture capitalists. And essentially, we saw two patterns. One is if you're really well connected and famous, you call your friends. Uh-huh. On the other hand, if you're if you're kind of a nobody. Yep. which it turns out Ben was when he first tried to get venture capital. You're a nobody. <laughs> um, you have to use a bunch of different strategies. Yeah. They're about timing and ingratiation. And so it's, a, it's, so there's a set of strategies for low power people. And I saw, I saw it in another AMJ paper with, um, with Sam Garg. Yeah. It was looking at the uh, relationship between CEOs and their boards. Mm. And normally that's constructed as an agency theory relationship and sure. the board is the power actor, the principal, and the CEO is the bad boy or the bad girl mm-hmm. doing what they're not supposed to do. That needs to be reeled in, yes. It needs to be reeled mm-hmm. in and watched over. But there are situations in which it's actually the CEO is the principal, particularly if it's their own company, and the board is the agents. And mm-hmm. so we try to understand how does a CEO, particularly a first-time CEO, manage their board? So we flip the relationship. And there, for example, one of the keys to making it one of the low power actor strategies is you never think of your board as a group. You think of them as individual relationships, dyadic relationships. Hmm. So my relationship with board member one, board member two, board member three, mm-hmm. so you conceptualize it as a dyad is a much more power enhancing strategy for a low power CEO. Yeah. Is this, um, I can't help but go to the, div- thinking about my uh, Sun Tzu, uh, the divide and conquer. Is this, um, Really, instead of thinking them as a conglomerate, individualizing them allows you to kind of maybe see times or places where you overlap in interests versus others where maybe you don't, uh, maybe potentially divide and conquer the, 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 the powerful group, so to speak. Yeah. You really, you, you can take, you can, if you will, conquer the powerful group. You can mm-hmm. also make, create a relationship on the one on one basis that you couldn't do in the group. You know, you can mm-hmm. pick, you, know, you can pick up on common, you know, you know, we both like to fish or we both mm-hmm. like, you know, indie movies or whatever yeah. it is. Um, you can also, as well as, as well as the skills. So for example, a board member who may be particularly good at uh, social media. 
Got it. Got yeah, so, it. Yeah, so we had kind of a string of papers that sort of flipped that that relationship and try and understand low power actors. Yeah, you know, uh, and I, I was thinking as I was kind of reading through some of these papers and thinking about power, um, one of the interesting things for me um, is that power is often intertwined with other factors, right? Like status um, and uh, mm -hmm. resources or uh, yep. ideology, you know, these kind of things. And so the, the tough part about power is it's rarely ever just about power. It's also power and some other thing. And so, yeah. you know, as, as people are trying to navigate, trying to get funding or trying to get a job, um, what, what are your thoughts about um, how power might mix with some of these other demographic um, characteristics? I mean, is that is that something that you've thought about? Is that something that um, maybe you've uh, considered in a paper or written a paper about? I you have a lot of papers. Or might, I might be talking about one you've already published, <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah I, no, you know, I think in most of the times when I've thought about it, for example, I've looked at, it's usually they're, they're wrapped up together. You're right. That mm -hmm. it's, that, and in fact, it, it is the resources that, and the status that create the power. Mm. So I think they are, I think they naturally go together. There, But there are also some times that there's a power you don't expect. Um it's actually a string of papers that Melissa Grabner did, but we were looking at, she had, she'd been working after her PhD for about a year at, at McKinsey um, doing M&A mm -hmm. and started realizing that, that the academic literature at M&A, mergers and acquisitions, is all from the point of view of the buyer. Mm. And yet she was seeing that there were buyers who sometimes weren't getting the company they wanted. And then she had friends that she knew from school who'd had, who were selling companies and so there was actually a surprising amount of power that sellers have. Yeah. And how do they use that power? So it was so if you usually feel it's the buyer's in charge, but in fact the seller has to say yes. Mm -hmm. And and you 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 think more about the buyers because there's no buyer out there that brags about how they got turned down. It's kind yeah. of like dating. I mean, who asks yeah. someone out for a date and, yeah. and it tells everybody you, you got you got dumped? You know, nobody <laughs> No one likes and to so, do that, yes. So, you know, you know that it's um, sellers have more power than, in fact, we often acknowledge. Yeah. You know, in, in thinking of that, uh, sorry, just remind me of one other thing. I'm going totally off script uh, here on you, Kathy. Apologize. But um, uh, I do a lot of stuff looking at, you know, labor, um, human capital. And one of the things that has occurred to me in the last few years is that the power dynamic between employees and employers has shifted. Mm -hmm. Um or at least in the minds of people, it shifted, right? Um, employers talking about people won't come to work, like they won't take a job. And a lot of it to me seemed like a bit of a power play. And so in a, in a lot of ways, I think there are, um, you know, the labor market is starting to try to figure out what's the strategy to get employers to relent on some of uh, these things, whether it's compensation or working remote or, what, or whatever it might be. Yeah. And so you, a lot of your work has reminded me of this in my own work, looking at that, that factor. Yeah, I think you're right. I think there's, it's, you know, I, I taught, I teach strategy, but I used to teach organizational behavior. Mm -hmm. And I've taught about, you know, human relations, which was kind of an outgrowth. And then, then the labor movement came out of that in the 1930s, yeah. 1940s. Um, but I, I used to teach it like for years. Oh, that's old school. You know, we mm. really don't think about unions anymore, <laughs> but you know, now all yeah. of a sudden it's new school. Yeah. What's old, so, what was old is new again, right? It, um, it absolutely is. Scientific management and human relations are, are reemerging. 
Yeah, I have, uh, you know, younger cousins and nieces and nephews who are, you know, now entering the workforce. They're in their early 20s. And to hear them try and find a way to describe collective bargaining, right? They they don't think about it as collective bargaining. They don't think about labors because, I mean, unions have just are, haven't existed or have been top of mind. But what they're actually talking about is collective action and a movement. I was like, you mean like a union? Like, no, 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 no not a union, just... You know, people getting together and thinking, yeah, so you, you know, and so being reintroduced uh, to it has been, has been fascinating. Okay. Yeah, um, for sure. So uh, I, I also couldn't help myself, but uh, one, since I have you here and you are, have been uh, very prolific uh, within the field uh, on these, on these many topics um, in, in part, we talked about the book, Simple Rules, How to Survive in a Complex World. And it occurred to me that there are many colleagues in our field, I'll include myself in that, who are trying to survive in a complex world uh, with their research, uh, trying to get it uh, accomplished, trying to get it published, trying to get people yeah. to read it once it's published. And um, you have been tremendously successful in this way, not only within academia, but in practitioner-focused areas, you are also a leader there. So uh, do you have any simple rules that... Uh, uh, folks out there might be able to follow as they try to navigate this in the research. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, simple rule. Yeah, I love simple rules because it's, uh-huh. it's like big fish, big pond. There's a central trade off. Yeah. Uh, so, but yeah, so I, I do. I do actually over the years. One 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 of my favorites is um, three papers makes a stream that mm-hmm. I actually learned from Bob Sutton, my colleague, Bob Sutton. Mm-hmm. But the idea there is if you're going to write about a topic, whether it's, you know, labor or it's uh, ecosystems or it's, I don't know, whatever it is, don't write one paper, don't write two, write three. Mm. That's that's when you start to, that's when people start to identify you as the man or the woman on that topic. Um, whereas um, I don't actually don't follow that rule that much anymore, but certainly starting out, yeah, um, I definitely followed that rule, and, and it was really helpful to me. I did end up my first papers were in agency theory, and I wrote, I wrote one, and then I wrote a second. I said, oh, I got to write a third, and I did. <laughs> it was the most successful. Uh huh. This the is the 1989 was, paper. In 1989, that was so the third wait, one. The 89 paper was the begrudging third agency paper. Yeah. Oh, I really should. Write, you know, I really don't like agency theory. I'm going to do this paper though. I wrote it super fast. Um, it was the big hit. Um, but the downside was I kept getting agency theory papers to review for like 10 years. Oh, like, yes. Can I, get, can I get rid of yeah. this? So. Let me tell you, as a uh, editor for uh, associate editor for AMJ. Oh, in every time I scour like best papers, I'm like, oh, they wrote best paper. Oh, they're going to be a great reviewer for this next paper. And yeah, that's going to happen for a long time. So that's you're a victim of your success. Time, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, another one is, and I think as long as I'm on, I'm on rules, another one is um, I, I used to I used to believe my, my old rule was perfect the paper and then send it in. Mm-hmm. And my new rule is now get the paper good enough, pick an editor you like and send it in. Mm-hmm. Uh, because it's the review process is just so random. Um, mm. that I think it's, I think it's really key to get an editor that is, knows your work and, and knows your, and you maybe is empathetic to the kind of style and method you're using. Yep. Um, and after that, you know, they're going to pick on how you frame the paper and you know, they're going to pick on, you know, many things. Yeah. And so to try and predict it is just a waste of time. Yeah. Get it so, so it's good and then ship it. 
So you're telling me you're not getting provisional accepts first round? Um, you're getting comments back on framing? Wow. Okay. I am. Yeah, I don't feel yeah. so bad now. <laughs> the provisional accepts, that was, that was, a, I got a few of those, but it was a long time ago. <laughs> so, yeah, I, so I, I really think much more about the editor, not the journal. And I think much more about certainly a solid paper and a paper that's, you know, you know, I'm proud of, but yeah. not a paper that I think is perfect. Don't let perfection be the enemy of the good or the very good. Something Absolutely. Like that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Great. All right. Any other rules uh, that you want to share with us? No pressure. Two is good, but you know, three is extreme. So, you know, when I when I write there. a paper, I always do the findings first. In fact, I do the tables first. Okay. So now why is that? Do you find that uh, useful for the writing process? Yeah, I mean, it's, that's the core of what you have. Yeah. You know, this you know the data and what you have and the findings. That's what you've got. Mm-hmm. And so that's really the core. So I, I I always start there in the middle of the paper with the first the tables, whether it's a, a whether it's a a stats-based paper or it's, or it's a case paper, mm-hmm. start with the tables. That's the core of the findings, write the findings. And then I write the discussion because it helps me think about what is it that is, what did I find? You know, what's the, what's the kernel of what, what I or my co my or my co-authors found. And then what's, um, and then what's it contributing to? Mm-hmm. So then do the discussion and then they do the front. Got it. And, and then, then I essentially it. make, okay. It's kind of like, 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 was it Jeopardy? The one that you ask the question, you have to yes, you get right. the answer, and you have to ask the question. Uh huh. I write it like Jeopardy. You know, here's uh-huh. I got the answer. What was the question that would have had to been there? All right. Well, you are the Ken Jennings then of the uh, of the academic <laughs> yeah, Jeopardy. Something so. like that. Excellent. And then I write the methods when I'm tired. Like, oh, I'm, I'm bored. You know, oh, I'm bored. I'm tired. I better do the methods. <laughs> All right. Well, that's good. All right. So, um, I, I want to get you out of here, but uh. I, Last two questions, and these are uh, more fun, kind of out-of-the-box questions that I like to ask all of our okay. guests here on the Lit Review. So the first is, um, you know, research is driven by phenomena that we observe but don't understand. Uh, I think the best research, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So, it, and this can be anything, not necessarily something in your wheelhouse, but are there any events or trends or behaviors that you see happening in the world right now that pique your curiosity? I'm interested in how firms... Or organizations more broadly scale, grow. Mm-hmm. So I'm not so much interested in startup anymore. I kind of think we know startup and we know established, but that 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 how to be an adolescent. Mm. I mean, maybe for people too. Mm-hmm. Uh, how to be an adolescent <laughs> is, is is an interesting uh, area. The other interesting thing I'm, I think is is thinking about organizations or firms that that have to navigate multiple logics. Like they're they're maybe profit seeking, but they're also into climate change or health or education or something, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. something else, or I'm kind of interested in SpaceX and space these days. So, so mm. that, 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 that world of the non-market with the market strategy, I think is a pretty interesting one. Yeah. Have, having, um, trying to navigate that internally in particular, right. Um, yeah. I, I, in universities tend to be examples of this where you have, uh, different areas that are focused in very different kind of, uh, pieces. Some that are, um, more practitioner focus, your engineering. I was an in- former engineer, you, you as well, I believe, right? Uh, yes, you were an engineer, yep. And, um, versus, you know, the liberal arts, social sciences, very different kind of logics. Um, but mm-hmm. all the same university, right? Um, but that doesn't always fit nicely together. <laughs> no, it doesn't. So how to, so I'm thinking about that. Um, and I'm just thinking about, um, maybe more, uh, another one is, 
is how machine learning and big data and all that are actually changing strategy. Like, what, mm -hmm. how are they changing the nature of advantage? Because mm -hmm. I think they are. Um, and I think we haven't really, you know, I think we, we understand fungible resources, but I don't think we understand the positive, the virtuous cycle aspect of yeah. machine learning and big data and that, that combination, how that's a virtuous cycle. I don't think, I don't think we've nailed that. So I'm, I'm thinking that I'm thinking about that too. Nice. Well, actually, not only as, as a topic, I'm also thinking about it as a method. Like I think you said in the intro, I did, mm. I did do a paper on, on machine learning in cases. Um, so I think methodologically, I think that's, I think it's very interesting to think about yeah. that combination. Harnessing the power. I mean, I, I'm inundated with chat GPT posts and questions. Uh, I'm almost tired of talking about chat GPT, but I know it's not going anywhere. So I have to remain yeah, engaged. I was, but... You know, I was thinking about chat GPT. I think it's too early to know what to do with it. Mm -hmm. um, and it, let's face it. I mean, chat GPT can maybe write a college essay. But if you try to say something that's true and that's imaginative and true, Mm -hmm. I don't know that chat GPT is there yet. I don't know that it can find ideas like a person can. Yeah. I mean, the biggest issue is obviously grading <laughs> and plagiary, uh, plagiarism. That's that's the reason why I've been inundated with it is trying to <laughs> suss all that out, which is a, a mess. But yeah, I, I'm with you. I, I, hey, I, I, uh, I went back to handwritten exams. Wow. <laughs> so, uh, That'll so, teach you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, three hours of writing kind of gets them <laughs> I, if you asked me to write two pages right now i think i would struggle to write yeah. and write two straight pages i don't i don't think i write that long anymore are your students like hand cramping while they're uh in the uh in the exams i just told them to suck it up no right. no i don't know yeah they, yeah they stopped studying for the exam they just started working on the on writing for two hours, <laughs> just, just, hours just getting one of those stress balls and working on my yeah, right. uh my hand strength We'll see how that works. They might not get open AI might not give us any choice. Yeah, for sure. All right. Last one. This is a fun question. Um, this is okay. the lit review. We care about literature and, and, and the like, right. but sometimes we read for fun every now and again. And so I'm curious, what are you reading right now or have most recently read for fun? Okay. I've read, um, I'm reading state, state of terror. If you, mm -hmm. I don't know if you know that book. It's mm -hmm. by, by Louise Penny, who is, um, a Canadian mystery author. And Hillary Clinton. So it's a book about it's a political thriller, and the, the, the heroine is um is a Secretary of State of the U.S. Mm, uh, and sounds so it's familiar. Got, okay. It's got <laughs> nuclear secrets and things like that in it. So, okay. so it's a, sort of a, it's a it's a it's a it's a spy thriller mystery thing, but it's also about women and friendship. So I'm so I'm kind of enjoying. Nice. All right. Yeah, so I'm, I'm intrigued. I'm a I'm a spy. I'm a, a John Le Carre kind oh, yeah. of person. So. You give me anything that's got some intrigue, espionage, geopolitical. <laughs> I'm, I'm interested. So that sounds great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've read a lot. I've read all of John Le Carre. Um, right. But yeah, this is this is this is yeah, this is in that in that spirit. But then there's yeah. this little twist of it's also got a bit more of a, you know a main thing in it is is the relationships among the women. Yeah. So that's kind of a fun thing. Which which is rare, you know. I mean, it's particularly in this genre. It's normally male dominated. So. Um, that, that's a, that's a unique angle for the story. All right. I'm, you, you got me, uh, and I'm putting, I'm adding it to my, <laughs> right. to my, to yeah. my reading my, list. Yeah. My, my other pop lit thing is, is I'm a science reader. So I'm, I'm subscribed to Scientific American mm -hmm. and I'm about, I'm about to read something called uh, the immense world. It's how animals can sense the world in ways we can't. So like sonar, things like that. So mm -hmm. 
Twilight. I, I'm a science person and I'm a I'm a mystery person. A mystery person sounds like a great uh, great combo. Well, Kathy, thank you so much for for joining us, and uh, this has been a really great and um, uh, insightful conversation. And um, uh, hope to run across you at a conference uh, some point soon. And be 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 aware that I'm sending you some reviews for AMJ on. Uh, some of these topics here, because now I know you, uh, you love getting reviews <laughs> on stuff you've, you've published. As long as it's not agency theory. I'm good. <laughs> All right. Take <laughs> care. Yeah, thank you. Sick. It was really fun uh, catching up with you. All right. That's it for the lit review. I appreciate Kathy for her time and I appreciate all of you for listening. If you like this episode, please subscribe to the lit review podcast. You can find this podcast by searching the lit review and AMJ podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and other podcast platforms, as well as on the AMJ homepage. You can also follow us on Twitter. There is an AMJ Radio Live, which is a weekly show hosted by AOM Connect. That's at AOM Connect on Twitter Spaces. I'll be joining the show once a month to provide a behind-the-scenes look at the podcast and answer any listener questions. Thanks to the Academy of Management for their support for this podcast. Special thanks to my producer, Holly Fearing, for all of her work behind the scenes. Our theme music is produced by Key to Life. This is Sekou Burmese. See you next time. Take care and be good. <laughs>